Jill Robinson here, CEO of TRG Arts, the consultancy firm that works globally to strengthen the arts and cultural sector. And today, as part of that effort, I'm launching a new podcast called Leading the Way with Jill Robinson. Leading the Way is going to be focused on the issues that we think and I think leaders need to be considering as they make their way into the next decade of arts and cultural management and guidance. I'm joined by Tom Bird, who's Chief Executive of Sheffield Theatres in Sheffield, England. Tom's career, you're going to hear him describe, started in, um, in London with Shakespeare's Globe. And together we talk about the concept of putting customers at the center and the issue of relevance, and also what it means to fling doors wide open and invite new members of the community in. I hope you enjoy this inaugural episode. I'm grateful you chose to join me today. Tom, thank you so much for joining me for the inaugural episode of Leading the Way with Jill Robinson. I'm so pleased that you could be here with me this afternoon. Your time, um, you are um, uh, broadcasting in from Sheffield in England. I'm here in Colorado. And we're also going to be talking about a really wonderful book by Nina Simon called The Art of Relevance. Thank you for making the time today. Thanks so much, Jill. It's great to be here. So let's start with just a little, just give, just give my listeners and viewers a, just a top line about your career and, and, and give me a, uh, and, and us a sense of when you became aware of putting customers, like when did customers become an important part of your leadership or management awareness? Sure. Um, so now I'm chief exec at Sheffield Theatres, uh, which is the biggest um, producing theatre complex outside of London within the UK. But that's the, the, I've come on a journey to get here that's taken me all around the world. Um, um, and both as a programmer as well as a producer of theatre. And the first moment that I really led and is also the first moment that I really had to think carefully about putting customers front and center. And that's um, when the Olympics were in London in 2012. And mm-hmm. I worked for the Globe uh, at the time and Shakespeare's Globe, Shakespeare's yeah. Globe uh, on the South Bank of the Thames. Right. And we were given really not very much money, half a million pounds in order to go towards really one of the most ambitious theatre festivals that I think has ever been put on at anywhere, which was called Globe to Globe. And we we said we want to do each Shakespeare play, all 37 Shakespeare plays, but each one will be in a different language and each one will be by a different theatre company from a Whoa. different country. Whoa! So firstly, at the start, it was great because they said to me, here's a travel budget and you can travel around the world watching things. Uh, and then I realized this was a mammoth like unprecedented undertaking Um, but anyway we programmed the shows and we you know we programmed shows from South Sudan and 
who programmed okay. Cymbeline from South Sudan and A Comedy of Errors from Afghanistan and um, Romeo and Juliet from Rio de Janeiro and like all these incredible things. Uh, and we were part of that wonderful um, cross-border celebration that, that happens in a city when the Olympics are on. Mm. But mm. Uh, then you think, oh, you know, once you've got that program in place and it all looks great and the brochure's there, uh, and I wouldn't do this thing, these things in this order now. But then you think, gosh, audiences, right? Audiences, and they're different audiences from what you can't just lazily go to the Globe's audience with um, the comedy of errors in Dari Persian. You know, you need to find it's London, so you can find these people. Um, but you need to find Persian speakers in London and Portuguese speakers in London, and so on. Mm. And so uh, we put together a team an extraordinary marketing team led by Meg Dobson. And they pounded the streets and they did data analysis and they showed up at like Somali coffee mornings and they they brought audiences to that festival. This so relates to the book we're reading. I mean, like, so relates to the book. Keep going, but wow. Yeah, so, so we ended up um, in a situation where 86% of the people who came to the festival had never been to the globe before. Wow. Uh, and wow. that's really because we were showing up in communities. Like you could literally only do this in London, New York, and almost no other city on the planet because all those communities, linguistic, cultural communities are there. But yeah. um, it, 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 was an, it was a fantastic kind of baptism of fire of putting, of putting um audiences, customers, front and center. We weren't saying come for free. We were saying you've got to buy a ticket. Uh, and um, But but what, what we did is we made it, I, I guess we made it a kind of a crucial part of each community's kind of year by, by showing up and being part of that community as much as we could in advance. Wow, wow, wow. wow. That is such a... There's such a microcosm of relevance. I'm super curious. What was your role at the Globe at that time? What was your like? So was, what was your title, or what was your yeah? I was director of that festival. Um, I'd been I'd been put in charge of that festival quite young, um, because I had an interest in the international. I knew my Shakespeare well enough um, to have those conversations on the programming side and. I had been running a completely different part of the Globe's operation, uh, but, you know, managing budgets well and leading teams um, in that area, which was music. Uh, and they took a chance on me. They took a chance on me. Mm. It was transformative. Yeah. yeah, boy, oh boy, it sounds like it. Um, two questions. Did you use price? Did you have? Did you have to fight a perception that price would need to be different to get people in or was it sort of standard pricing like the globe normally charged see the globe has this the globe has this five pound yard and so right, right. Yeah. so that's right that's like a silver bullet for price totally. instance. Yeah, <laughs> and, right, totally. and it never you you know this better than anyone almost in the world but like you the show is the show has what you call the perception of success, if that yard yes. is full. The first yes. thing you do before you sell the £40 ticket is you yes. must sell the £5 ticket. Otherwise, yes. no one thinks the show's any good. Yes. <laughs> so, so I you, have been there, and I know exactly what that looks like, and it's electric. 
Yeah. I would never want to sit there parenthetically, but it's electric yeah. <laughs> or staying yeah. there actually. Yeah. But like, I, I, it's a bizarre one because I, I'm not even interested in selling the tickets for £50 until I've sold the tickets for £5. We don't have an event. Right. No, completely and entirely, which is, you know, I probably um, have seen as many venues as in, anyone, uh, you know, really. Mm. I've spent 30 years looking at mm. venues. And um, Shakespeare's Globe is distinct. It is distinct. Um, in so many ways. Okay. And do you have any um, knowledge or data or information about whether or not those communities stuck? Did they, was it one and done or was it, did it stick? We, we do. And I don't know off the top of my head, but the globe kept, um, the globe kept that data on how many, how many people came back. And it was, I don't have the exact figures to hand, but I know it was good enough for us to continue that international programming. So the following year, we had a show from Tbilisi, Georgia, a show from Hyderabad, India, and uh, a show from Hong Kong, all in the languages of those countries, um, because we knew that we could get the audiences back to a sufficient level. The question always for us was, well, will they also come and see our like core program? And, And can we can we cross over, can we cross that audience over as well? And that was always like a long-term thing. So I I don't know how well that that has worked. It'd be really interesting to talk to the Globe about that. So from there, did you go directly from there to York? Yeah, but I I then spent six years as executive producer there. So off the back of that festival, uh, they said, okay, you can be, um, you know, part of the more senior team. And uh, that meant organizing, really that meant um, making sure that everything the artistic director said happened and that the artistic director, Dominic, was, uh, he said once, I want to tour Hamlet to every country in the world. He said once, I want to tour a massive, the biggest production of Merchant of Venice you've ever seen with Jonathan Price to like rural cities in China. And you know, <laughs> he said once, "Let's let's make a film of every single Shakespeare play and put make a temp- thirty-seven temporary cinemas along the South Bank in London." So it was a hugely, it was such an exciting time, and oh then it wasn't just put on a produ- production of Roman Juliet. My goodness! So um, that, but that that really allowed me to lead on big projects and to also kind of lead the Globe team in the transition between artistic directors, the Globe Theatre team. So the, the, the structure of the Globe is that, is that this is worth saying very briefly, is that it, it, there are different areas. There's an education team and there's a huge kind of exhibition team. Um, and they're quite, they're fairly distinct from one another, or they were when I was there. Um, and Neil, the chief exec, has done a huge amount of work at gluing, yeah. gluing those together, actually. Yeah. At the time, yeah. it was quite a distinct operation. So um, I, I suppose I was leading that team through, I was second in command leading that team through um, transitions between artistic directors, which was really interesting thing as well. I am sure. Okay, so before we go from there to York, what was the most exciting, aside from the, the Olympics, you caught the vision, you made it happen, and it was so cool. Well, I'm just super curious for me personally. 
in the globe? Yeah, at the globe. Like you just named off a, a handful of really audacious yeah. blacklist. Yeah. Any of them happen? And if so, yeah. which one like was so exciting you can't even stand it? Yeah, we taught Hamlet to we taught Hamlet to 189 different countries in a two-year period. So 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 I mean, we made this eight-actor production of Hamlet. We took 12 actors on the road. We got on a boat on the Thames underneath Tower Bridge. We sailed to Amsterdam and we played in the National Theatre in Amsterdam. And we went on to play. Um, between the two anniversaries for Shakespeare, 23rd of April 2014 and 23rd of April 2016, um, that one is the anniversary of his birth, one is of his death, I can't remember the exact maths. We played in 189 different countries. We tried to get to every country in the world, that was the plan, and we didn't get to North Korea, and we didn't get to a couple of, um, we didn't get to Niger in Africa, um, and we didn't get um, to South Sudan and, and one or two others just because we just couldn't do it safely. But we had some extraordinary, really, really extraordinary experiences. The penultimate performance was in Elsinore. We were doing Hamlet in Elsinore in the ballroom to the Queen of Denmark, which was surreal. And then, and then President Obama came to the final performance in the Globe. And so we, he came onto the stage and he knows his Shakespeare, right? Which is really cool. So we expected to sort of tell him about Hamlet. No way. <laughs> he wanted to talk. He knew it all. And he wanted to have a debate about, about Hamlet. And, um, and it was great to have that recognition, you know, from someone we all admired so much. Um, wow. Well, what, that was just, that was just a real pleasure for me to hear. I mean, we've known each other now for um, some number of years, and I I didn't know that um, that set of experiences you've had, um, deep and wide and super, super interesting. Okay, so you go from being executive producer at Shakespeare's Globe to York Theatre Royal? Yeah, Uh, which is, that's, um, York Theatre Royal is one of the, oldest i mean it's the second oldest theater company continuously operating in the english-speaking world so it's it's been around for for centuries but it's a small community focused um producing theater um in the north of england i'm from the north of england um, people in the states may not be aware of this, but there's a quite a, there's a tension that that is I'm sure replicated in the states in a different way between between London and and the southeast and oh for and sure the north of England right oh, you, you, sure. you guys have your equivalent the coasts yeah, versus yeah, center yeah. of the country same in Canada you know yeah. coasts and center yep I I I really don't don't want didn't want and don't want the the cultural life of the north of England to be inferior to that that's available in London. And um, I wanted to go home uh, in order to, a little bit in order to raise a family there, but also to um, but also to uh, play my part. And, and I suppose uh, use some of the experience that I built up over 15 years in London to um, contribute into the cultural life of the north of England. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's when um, we got an experience with each other, TRG and York Theatre Royal and you, um, when you were looking to shift 
some things related to customers. Talk about that. Just like what were a couple, three things that you were interested in making happen there that you feel like you were able to accomplish? I mean, so many things, but we weren't, you know, we didn't really use data at all. Uh, or, and, and even beyond that, there was a culture of not really using ev- any evidence to ground decision making. And it was kind of, it was, it was kind of okay to say, um, you should never do a children's show in the Easter holidays uh, without um, what you would want and what I would want at that moment, which was, tell me how many families are coming. <laughs> like, uh, and, um, and so we did a bit of work um, early. We did a bit of work on let's, use some, let's get some data and let's um, use evidence to make our decisions and let's just show evidence for when we're presenting, when we're presenting decisions that we're, that we're making to when we're presenting those to board or to stakeholders or to each other. Yeah, uh, you know, this TRG helped us a huge amount. Uh, uh, really, we just didn't have the right data permissions in place. You know, the systems weren't really in place. Vicky Biles did a huge amount of work. Our communications director did a huge amount of work on really turning up the way we asked patrons for date for permissions. She turned that inside out. Again, maybe not such a thing in the States, but in the UK, you have to have get explicit consent, really, yeah. to, to, to use, um, to process data. Um, so, we, so we did that. Uh, we then also uh, did a seat plan and, you know, totally revitalized the seat plan and reimagined mm-hmm. the seat plan. And, mm-hmm. you know, even at that stage, I've been trained to think um, that the, you know, the, the last seat in the house, if it's in the back of the gallery, should be really cheap, even if right. the demand for it is off the scale. Right. But like, right. that was a that right. was a re- right. that was still right. even right. even being quite an experienced theatre producer, that that was still like for some reason that was still a bitter pill for me to swallow at that. It was, time. A, hu- it was it's a huge paradigm shift for yeah. almost everyone because you yeah. just tra- you ha- you had been trained up to that point in the opposite in the opposite and. Um, the other thing we did, I mean, we did so many things. The other thing we did is we stopped spending so much on outdoor advertising and and, and we did, a, again, a complete shift to, towards a sort of more personalized, tailored, segmented way of, way of marketing at your Relationships, like what we're going to be talking about related to the book, right? It's, yeah. sound, it's marketing at the end of the day is communication. And if we can segment, then we can relate to people as if we know who they are and talk to them in that way. Yeah. It's not uh, magic, but it, it, uh, but it does, there is a science to it for sure. And, and I mean, we, there were some big, there were some big transformations to make at York. There were, you know, I, we had to, we had a, a pantomime, which is a which is a Christmas show, people will know in, in the UK. It's a traditional Christmas show that theatres do every Christmas, and it's like the equivalent of the Nutcracker in North yep. America. Um, Christmas Carol. It, it's a fairy tale um, comedy. <laughs> There's no real way of explaining it. Um, right. Yeah. And um, we, it's it, it earns sixty five percent of the revenue in New York Theatre Royal in the year, and it's on for like a few weeks at Christmas. Oh, right. So, so like, you have to get it right, and. Right. Um, we had had one of probably the most famous pantomime in the country uh and it had been going since the early 70s and clearly in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s 
it was an amazing piece of work and um it had started to kind of run out of gas and um it was still too early for us to kind of talk about that but that the renewed focus on data that i was talking about, uh, about before meant that you were looking at the pantomime audience data there for example and thinking mm, gosh we have a problem with th- this is this is running towards the edge of a cliff and uh, so that's a huge change I had to make there was really changing that that pantomime and, and out with the old in with the new on that pantomime, which drew I remember the conversations. It was terrifying, I think, because the shift was it had been so beloved. Yeah. But but it was it had lost the ability to attract audiences. Yeah. Uh, it, right. had, it had lost the ability to retain audiences, to acquire new audiences. And um in that world you're just like, oh, we've got a problem. It's irresponsible not to do something. Even if it's not a problem right now, it's irresponsible not to do something about this. And we, we had a conversation in Saddle as Wales that I'll always remember and appreciate uh, where um, I almost like was reaching out to a few people in the industry who I respected for kind of permission, for want of a better word, uh, to do this. And, and uh, I'll appreciate that conversation forever because it was hopefully it, it stands the theatre in good stead. Mm-hmm. It it certainly did, and and while it was bumpy in the transition for a minute, uh, I think it it turned into something that um, is a very very positive thing in York and for the for the theater company. Okay, so Sheffield Theaters, we can come back to York if it's you know if we want to, we we will wind our way through. But Sheffield Theaters, Tony Award winning, Life of Pi, Sheffield Theaters, um, and also the awards in the in the UK in London I'm forgetting the name tell me the name Olivier's Olivier's which are equal and wonderful um so I don't know what the awards were at the Olivier's but that and I haven't seen the production just between you and me I need to see it because everyone that I talk to who does see it just raves about its beauty and and its and its impact so Sheffield theaters as you described is is the largest regional theater, extremely um, well regarded globally, but but in in England. And um, you came into a theater company that was um, uh, like you um, was wanting to take a leap in understanding customers and patrons, and really change operations to put customers and patrons at the center. And at the time, Dan Bates, who was the chief exec then, um, began a data-driven process to understand in our parlance, um, advocates, buyers, and triers, who are the first timers? What's the likelihood of um, hanging on to them? How does programming have an impact? What might reporting look like? How could we integrate that into our operations through ticketing systems and through training? And um, how could we segment and grow? And one of the things that we did with Dan and Rob, um, your artistic director, um, was embark on a more than a year-long process um, with Fred Reichelt, who was the originator of the Net Promoter System and SCORE, Fred and TRG, and six theater companies, Sheffield was the only one in England, embarked on a process of um, 
um, saying, we're going to listen and we're going to systematize that listening through surveys. Yes. Um, but even then, even then we've talked about this, um, surveys were something that became a tactic that if I check the boxes and I'm doing the surveys, then I'm done. Just like the score became um, a measure and sometimes the measure and would miss the point if all you were doing were surveys and trekking your score. And so with Fred, we, um, with Sheffield and five other theaters, one in Canada and the rest were in America, um, began to yes, do surveys at various times to various segments and constituents, but more importantly, with the artistic leader in sort of arm in arm, um, designed systems to take the feedback, examine it, and see what we could learn mm. um, about reactions to programming, but more, much, much more often, it was reactions to the environment or um, the experience. Uh, I'm curious, as you've, you've been at Sheffield Theatres now, how, how long? Four months? How long? Four or five months. Yeah. And so in that four or five months, what have you, um, what, what has stuck? What have you heard? What did you walk into and observe about Sheffield's culture of keeping the customer um, as maybe as important as the mission or alongside the mission? How would you describe what you see there? Yeah, I mean, there's a high-functioning, massively patron-centric um, team here. Um, there's this kind of super collaborative and communicative axis, communicative axis between our director of customer experience, Kaz Laurent, and our communications director, Rachel Nutland, in particular, that um, means that they are talking to each other all the time uh, and working together all the time on, um, you know, present customers and future customers. And um, I mean, obviously that relationships, obviously that relationships are important, but, you know, together they make up the not officially here, and it's not named this, but they make up the kind of patron services, the dream kind of patron services department that, that, that you know, we've talked about in the past where you're, you know, you're just really, you're really, really caring of um, those who are, those who are joining us at Sheffield Theatres and you are making decisions only really based, based on, data and evidence in terms of how you're going to sell shows, um, what shows you're going to program into our, into our presenting space, the Lyceum and so on. So it, it's, a and, and there are, and there are regular feedback loops as well in terms of we, we're asking, we're asking audiences and customers and donors and other stakeholders all the time, what, what they think of us. Um, we're now turning to um, think about a kind of longer term vision, and we want to do we want to do a huge and enhanced listen um, to the community more widely. 
to answer the question that Nina Simon poses in her book, which is, what do the people of Sheffield, the equivalent of Santa Cruz, what do the people of Sheffield want this, want this to be? So yeah. that, that's, yeah. that's an interesting next stage in, in that listening process. Describe Sheffield. Like, describe what you see as the current audience um, at Sheffield theatres, which also includes um, that funny pool thing that you do that's not pool. What's it called? Um, the game. What's it called? The, the, <laughs> what do you mean? When they're, you know, oh, snooker, when they're... snooker. <laughs> yes, snooker, which is not yeah. pool, but its own it's its own game but the the the, the campus attracts a well you describe yeah what, so the, so the city is huge colossal city that's not not well known because it doesn't really shout about itself a huge amount but um it's the fourth biggest city in the country and it's um a steel making place you know like think bethlehem pennsylvania I mean, yeah, Pittsburgh, I was going to say, right? It's yes. absolutely founded in steel, and the steel industry has declined. Um, and um, and so it's looking for the next thing, but it hasn't quite worked out what that is. And I'm like, it's culture. But uh, <laughs> so, so that's the city. It's a kind of hardworking, um, huge um, industrial city uh, in the north of England um, with a lot of potential huge amount of economic potential. Um, the, the campus of the theatres um, is, is like, it's, a, it's quite an enviable business model to lots of peers and colleagues in that there is um, the Crucible, which is a, a thousand seat thrust stage producing theatre, the architecture of which is vaguely similar to Stratford, Ontario and the Guthrie in Minneapolis, but it, it's kind of unique. Um, and um, we produce shows in there, um, including the shows you mentioned that have, have done well recently. Um, then there's also a, a large um, 19th century um, theatre, the Lyceum, which is just over a thousand seats. And we don't make anything in there. We present touring touring work in there. And the function of that is, is, is not really mission-led at all. It's kind of commercial um, uh -huh. in order to fund the cool. Yeah, and then there's the playhouse, which is you know where we experiment, uh, which yeah. is um, a flexible black box type space. Um, so it's three theatres, and and they're all really distinct in terms of what they're here for, and we love and adore them all, um, and they make up a kind of business model that just about works. Uh huh. And so the people of Sheffield who are attending or visiting the campus. Do they look like the traditional, what I would call the traditional theater goer today, which is highly educated, higher income, mostly older, mostly Caucasian or white? Is that who's attending today? Or is it more diverse than that? It depends so much on the product, um, but fundamentally, yes, is the answer. And mm -hmm. um, we're... Um, taking you know steps like so many people are to change that, but um, at the moment we're in this sort of position where the, the, there's this sort of paradox which, which lots of people listening to this will recognise, which is we're kind of generating revenue at scale, and it feels really tough to generate revenue at scale and simultaneously 
reach out to new communities. And, and in our case, the, the city of Sheffield is kind of divided between an affluent West and a not affluent East. And mm-hmm. like so many cities. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and, and unsurprisingly, uh, lots of our audiences come from, come from the West and we'd like yeah. our audiences to, and we'd like Sheffield theatres to be for everyone in the city. So the big challenge is how do we, how do we do that and continue to generate revenue at scale at the scale we need to. Okay. So you and I have read this book, the art of relevance by Nina Simon. And I find it to be one of the most easy to read, beautifully spoken playbooks kind of for this precise conversation. And one of the observations that I have that she addresses in the book actually is um, builds on what you've just described um, and is, I think, even more um, uh, high-pitched. The, 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 the volume on, on this is even higher now. Since the pandemic, since um, the social and societal divisions and reckoning that has happened during this pandemic, time in a variety of ways that has been felt differently in the regions and countries in which we work, but which we all feel. I see it very, very clearly. We all feel and can place in our communities. And so the the the, the nonprofit model or the charitable model, um, I find, and leaders and boards, find, I find, find themselves on their heels a little bit because there are so many things to raise money for right now. There are so many places that we could support. And so the question is of of arts and culture, why should we, aside from the commercial entertainment value, and there certainly is that, um, uh, but why should we support you? And the answer that often, you know, we find ourselves compelled to give is, well, because we believe it, we believe it, I believe it, um, you only have to see what happened at, you remember in, there was a UK theater um, conference that David Brownlee uh, and we hosted, this was in 18 or 19, and um, it was down in the West End at a venue that I can't remember, but um, one, during the immigration crisis that it hit, the wet, hit Western Europe, mm-hmm. there was a refugee camp in Calais in France, mm-hmm. and there was a gentleman who came to that theater conference who spoke um, about how the refugees built an art tent. Mm-hmm. Do you remember hearing about this? Yeah. Because they just needed to set aside their misery and remember their humanity. Right. And so we know as people who believe in our culture, that, 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 that creativity is in fact available to, and, could be an important part of anyone's diet and, and, and lives. Right now, I feel like more than ever, we want theater, symphony, um, the, the classical music, dance to be for everyone. But she asks the question, actually, like, can it be for everyone, really? Um, and how do, we, how do we really imagine I'm going to struggle to say this in the right way, but she really, it's one of the, um, what does she call it? One of the delusions about relevance, 
um, which is that it can be for everyone. It should be. And so in response to that, just give me some reactions to that. Cause you just said, you know, we, re- we want to listen because we want Sheffield theaters to be for the entirety of, of Sheffield. Uh, like, uh, yes, the, I just flip that and say, the, we must make sure we're, we're not relevant to no one. There's a double negative there, but do you know what I mean? We must make sure. Yeah. I think what I took, the first thing I took from that, from Nina's book is every time we make something, we have to be searching for that positive cognitive effect that she talks about. And, yeah. and we, we have to make sure that's almost like a litmus test for um, anything we do. And if it, if it's not going to um, lead to a positive cognitive effect in one community, and it definitely doesn't have to be for everyone. It might be that at that moment it's for people from the west of Sheffield, but now and again it has to be for people from the east of Sheffield as well and the north of Sheffield. Um, if we're not going after, um, if we're not thinking about um, how we generate some positive cognitive effect in in those communities, then we we're not doing. We're not doing our job right. And she says, importantly, that familiarity is not enough. You know? Right, um, right. It's not right. enough to just say, um, we're going to do a show about this area of town um, without without thinking, yeah, but like, what's the content of that show? And why is that going to be a positive experience? And why is that going to give uh, a key to a key to Sheffield theatres in a more permanent way to someone from that community. Um, so, I mean, that was, that's just so important, I think, to us in terms of what, what we do. And um, I don't think that there's a, that that means that you can never do Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet. It just means you have to think about when you do it and why you're doing it and who you're doing it for. And that wraps up part one of my insightful conversation with Tom Bird. We've journeyed through Tom's impressive career, learned about his leadership path and his perspective on keeping customers at the heart of every decision, but we're only just scratching the surface. In part two of our conversation, we're going to delve deeper, reflecting more on Nina Simon's groundbreaking book, The Art of Relevance. We'll discuss how to lead with our ears, and explore strategies for baking relevance into the arts business model, making our organizations not just accessible, but also meaningful to the communities we serve. If you've joined our conversation thus far, you won't want to miss part two, as we continue to explore these crucial themes about leadership in the arts sector. See you in the next episode. That's all for this episode of Leading the Way with Jill S. Robinson, brought to you by TRG Arts. Thanks for listening and believing that insightful, daring, and innovative leadership is the way to a more resilient future for the arts and cultural industry. Make sure to subscribe to Leading the Way on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you found this episode helpful, please rate and review the show. For additional resources and to sign up for the podcast newsletter, we invite you to visit our website at leadingthewaypodcast.com.